Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. A new domestic abuse bill has just become law in the UK, which gives more support to victims. Progress is being made thanks to the work of campaigners, yet one third or more of the world's women experience abuse, violence or hurt at the hands of men during their lifetimes, so there's much more work to do. In her book, History and Memories of the Domestic Violence Movement, We've Come Further Than You Think, Jill Haig takes us through movements combating violence against women, especially domestic violence, over the last 50 years. Jill is Professor Emeta of Violence Against Women's Studies at the University of Bristol, and crucially, she is an insider, a participant in the social movements and campaigning struggles. Her book raises the marginalised voices of abused women and women activists and documents this important history so that we can learn from it and continue the progress they've made. Thanks for speaking to us today. I wanted to start by asking you if you could tell us a bit more about your background and why you wanted to write this book. Yeah, thank you, Jess. Um, I just wanted to quickly start by saying it's a pleasure. It has been a pleasure to work with the Publishers Policy Press, which have who have been absolutely amazing. I couldn't have wanted for a better service. And of, you know, I publish lots of books, and I've never had such a wonderful service. So thank you. Oh, to- thank you. That's really nice to hear. Um, well, I've been an, an activist on violence against women for nearly 50 years, um, starting off in the women's liberation movement and then the violence against women movement, which um, came out of that. As an activist, a, res- a refuge worker, um, a researcher, a, a collective member, um, a, a trainer, teacher, and latterly, as you said, a professor of violence against women's studies. It's one of, I'm one of the few people with that kind of title in the world. And um, this is my final book of many, 100 and something, 140 publications or something. Wow. This is my final book. And so it's especially poignant for me. And what I wanted to do in the book was to recall not only our history and our movement that we made to fight domestic violence and um, but also my own, it recalled my own life, if you like. So it was very personal, powerful history. And as I was saying, I've been involved for so long um, that it's been part of my DNA. It's part of, I've devoted my life to this subject. And so to be able at the very end of my career to write a book recording this powerful history, which is in danger of being forgotten, is a great privilege for me. So I've read the book and I thought it was wonderful and powerful and it will be inspirational for people. Um, At the beginning of chapter two, um, you say that the women's liberation movement seemed to leap into the world for those of you who are engaged in making it happen. So why did the movement happen when it did and how did it feel to be part of it? Yeah, well, to be honest, it transformed all our lives, really. Um, For many of us, they were our finest days, I think. Although, of course, there was lots of arguments and conflicts as well. But the women's liberation movement came out of the social ferment of the time, really, of the late 60s, early 70s, which was a time of political transformation and change, quite, quite different to today. Um, There was the black liberation movement, there were national liberation struggles all over the world as, of course, obviously the flags came down on the 
British Empire and other empires. There was the gay liberation struggle, the anti-Vietnam War struggle, the counterculture, whole new ways of living and being. And so it was out of that ferment that um, women involved in some of those struggles began to realize that their voices were not being properly heard, that they were constantly being um, kind of sidelined. And so they began to form their own movement. I was part of that too. And the women's liberation movement kind of burst onto the scene. It was a tremendous time of, of daily change and passion. And it, I mean, from my experience, it was a movement of such verve and such passion and daily, daily, daily things changed as we kind of built campaigns and, and took on these issues which of, um, of women's subordination, if you like, which hadn't really been addressed before and it was brand new. I mean, now it's not brand new, but then it was brand new and absolutely amazing to be part of, a real privilege. It's terrifying to think that the recognition that women and children had a right to live with freedom and without violence was once this revolutionary idea. Um, some of the most important developments in the women's movement, um, especially from the 1970s onwards, have concerned domestic violence, including honor-based violence, and this is what you focus on in the book. Why did you choose to look at this area specifically? Well, I think actually I probably want to say that it still is a revolutionary idea in lots of contexts and lots of uh, parts of the world and so on, and it's still terrifying. There's still a massive amount of violence against women. I call it a global catastrophe, violence mm. against women across the world. But the women's movement was changing everything at once, and one of the things was violence against women. And so that was really why um, um, I, I came to focus on it. The first glimmerings of change really started um, in around 1970. Um, and what happened, I suppose, was that the activists involved in the women's liberation movement learned from each other, from personal experiences they'd had, if they had. They learned from talking to other women. Um, for me, I was working with girls who had often been abused, and, and I wanted to join a collective, and I started to join some of the collectives on violence against women at the time. And we actually began to form an analysis, more or less for the first time, um, of um, how this sort of wide, if you like, wide um, recognition of women's subordination in many ways um, uh, was kind of reinforced by violence underneath. And, and um, it took us a while to realize we were up against something big, really. But then the women's movement gave rise to the into, um, interlinked rape crisis of domestic violence movements, the main service provider of the latter being women's aid. So I just want to say really that nowadays we have a fairly wide ranging domestic abuse and violence and abuse sector and lots of services, even though they're being cut back these days, but um, they all stem in some way from the women's, from activism and from the women's movement against violence in the 1970s. Um, it's a quite straightforward connection. Um, I'll just say a little bit more about that if, if, um, if it's of interest. Um, what happened was that women's centres were set up and women experiencing violence started turning up at them asking for help. They weren't really fe necessarily feminists, but they, they came there asking for help. Um, that was the case um, in um, Bristol, where one of the, the women's centre was in somebody's basement. And um, 
the women running the centres didn't know what to do, so they started to offer accommodation to these women, saying, OK, stay with us, which was very, very brave. And often, of course, furious husbands would appear at the door. And so this need began to be identified that um, women and children wanted suddenly to get away from situations of domestic violence. They'd found out somebody might help them and they threw their fates to the winds and just turned up at the door, which was incredible, really incredible courage. Um, how, how, they, did they, how did they find out that these refugees were there? How did they know? Because obviously there wasn't the internet. And... Yeah, they weren't even refugees um, at this time. They were just back rooms of somebody's house. But mm. um, I think sometimes social workers knew and housing oh, okay. sometimes knew. But often they just heard and they just came. And can you imagine? You just oh, take yeah. your children, you get a bag and you throw your fate to the winds and you go to these other unknown women you yeah. haven't got a clue what would happen they haven't got a clue what would happen so it was really quite extraordinary at the time and then it led on which i might talk about a bit later it led on to the formation of actual refuges okay um so that's obviously a really um powerful moment of change as the movement grew what other innovative moments have there been in your experience um, well, we had to make it all up as we went along. I mean, there have been some previous interest in this, particularly in the late 19th century, but not very much. So we had to make it up as we went along. So it was all innovative moments in a way. True. Um, I'll come back to refugees in a second, I think. But over the years, revolutionary um, things have been the later establishment of um, interagency responses, bringing together all the services and agencies. Um, coordinated community responses across whole areas, which were, I want to say, were pioneered in Duluth, Minnesota, by the great, and now late, um, and sadly we've lost her, one of our greatest activists, Ellen Pence, who was a friend of mine, and who pioneered the um, Duluth um, method, which brings together agencies across a locality. And then in more recent years, of course, we've had ideas like co coercive control, which um, has now become part of um, definitions and so on. So there's been many, many developments. Of course, the legal changes, although not great, um, but have transformed the um, situation in many ways, because before that there weren't specific laws. So fighting for those laws has been key, even though the laws still, even with the new Domestic Abuse Act that's just been passed, the laws still um, fall down in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, what, what ways are the laws falling down at the moment? Well, the Domestic Abuse Act is, you know, it's just it's just been passed, and it is great. It gives a new definition of domestic abuse, and um, it's a it's a, a considerable change in what we've had before: rough sex, attempted strangulation, and things like that. It, it expands the provision on coercive control. But one of the main things it doesn't do is it really does not provide support and help to migrant women, to women who have no recourse to public funds, and and. Um, so that's been a major falling down of it. And also, you know, it's great to have this law, but unless you have proper funding <laughs> across the board, ring fence, proper funding, um, however many laws you've got, if you haven't got, if the services are facing cutback as they are now um, in many ways, then um, um, that's a problem. Um, so the law is just one tool among many, I suppose. But the, the can I speak just a little bit about the refugees, maybe the formation? Of course, the please. Yeah, please do. Um, 
Refuges, of course, are now commonplace across the world, um, but then there really weren't any. There was really no services, no provision, no housing possibilities, no counselling, nothing at all. And so the refugees, when they first came into being, were completely revolutionary. They were new to everybody. Um, and the struggles to get them established were um, conducted with ferocious dedication, all unpaid um, by the women concerned. But immediately, these moving on from taking women into back rooms, and then the mm. project was to set up proper, proper houses, immediately these came into being, women would arrive at the door immediately. Um, and I suppose it's worth saying that in a way, they, the refugees came into being and confronted men's rights and power, if you like, within the family. At the time, the male, it's still the case, but it was more so then that the male-headed family was the, the heart and bedrock of society and family relations and sexual relations. And suddenly, women were taking unprecedented actions to leave their husbands and families due to violence, um, which was incredibly brave and, and um, fearless at the time. Um, women and children were suddenly taking action to leave families and to more or less disappear. And at first, um, you know, men, lots of husbands, men, women, um, society couldn't believe it was happening. Mm. This was happening. And not only were the women doing this, but they were then going to live in houses run by other women <laughs> at, at, at confidential addresses. So it was a change of incredible audacity, I think, and bravery at the time. Um, now, as I say, it's commonplace, but then it challenged the very fabric of um, <laughs> of personal and sexual relationships in the family. So women were doing this at the same time they were living day to day, absolutely terrified of what was going to happen to them next. Yeah. Yeah. And suddenly they were able to, suddenly, suddenly they could leave home and go to a moderately safe place where other yeah. women would support them. It was just extraordinary, really. Yeah. I mean, I think they were such brave and pioneering moves forward looking back on them I was part of them and you know you, you, you're carried along by idealism and you do it but looking back they were extraordinary well there must have been huge bravery on from the part of the women organizing as well you must have been angry husbands to deal with and backlash from communities and things like that Yes, I mean, sometimes you would go and, you know, you'd made an arrangement to, I don't think they do it now, but you'd made an arrangement to meet a woman somewhere on the street, and you'd kind of scoop her up with her children and drive yeah. hell for leather to the refuge by a secret route, if you knew one. And so possibly the husband, in some cases, the husband would be racing along behind. So mm -hmm. um, it, it was um, kind of um, slightly foolhardy, one could say, but very brave um, um, at the time. Incredibly so. Uh, okay, uh, you talk a lot in the book about issues facing minority groups in the past and now, and some women's projects are still marginalised, so what can we learn from the conflict and division that the women's movement has seen? Um, what can we learn? Well, I think one of the things we have to learn is that we need an intersectional analysis. It's a very popular word these days, but it's very important. Um, we need to take on racism and take on discrimination 
as a very integral part of women's issues. It's not something to add on later, it's an integral part. Um, and that was sometimes the women's movement at the time was slow to take on those issues and they were challenged by the black women's movement, which um, um, set up some independent projects as a result. Um, there was, although everybody was trying their best, there was sometimes a sense of white entitlement, I think. And mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say that that still exists sometimes, particularly with um, with domestic violence organisations working with local funders and councils, but also unfortunately within within the sector itself, um, within the majority white organisations may not take on these issues properly. So it's a very long struggle. And of course, there are also issues for lesbians, issues around disability and so on that have to be taken on too. But mm -hmm. I just would like to say that the independent black women's movement that evolved included incredibly pioneering services like Southall Black Sisters in London, um, set up in 1979, like the Asian Women's Resource Centre in Brent, um, the network of refuges for South Asian women, which extends across the country, um, and also pioneering developments in the other countries of the UK, like Scotland and Wales. Um, the struggle goes on, um, but huge steps have been made, but I, it is just worth saying that in the cutbacks that we've had since 2010, black and minority ethnic women's projects have been affected disproportionately. Okay. Yeah, that's an important point. Um, okay, so speaking of different groups, it's important to remember that the model of domestic violence support in the West doesn't necessarily work everywhere and that the movement against violence against women is diverse and global. So you talk about this in the book as well. Um, please, can you give some examples of women's support projects across the world? Yes, well, um, it is, we are part of a worldwide movement and there are in fact activists in every country of the world, everyone, even if they're fighting you know, in, in very difficult situations. Mm. Um, but it's worth, recognizing that shelters as they would be called across the world refuges and not have not universally been regarded as the way forward in in many um, um majority world developing evolving emerging countries um those uh, a refuge has been considered as perhaps a bit of a western response or an individualistic one when a more collective response within the community might be needed okay so, they have now, nowadays almost all countries have a few refuges and there is a world network a world conference of shelters now um, across the world um, but um, often um, in other countries the struggle will be specific around whatever the um, the most pressing issue is there and it's important not to impose western ideas on that um, there's organizations like the inspiring, I would say, Mifumi, um, Ugandan um, NGO working on violence against women in Uganda, which runs a network of, co of cooperative support projects about, they're about strengthening the women and children because they're probably going to go back to their husbands, they're not going to leave like they might do okay. in the past. And um, so strengthening um, empowerment projects like that, incredible projects like um, Mustasa in Zimbabwe. Um, they are really um, inspiring um, 
activists all over the world. And um, of course, they might be working on something else like um, honor-based violence, which um, might be a big issue. Or of course, there are other issues as um, also worked on in this country around FGM, forced marriage, all those other um, issues as well. Um, and of course, there also are worldwide um, campaigns, if you like, um, um, worldwide action. And I just wanted to just say here for a moment that the picture on the front of the book is of a international demonstra a demonstration which was held in Mexico City, in the Zocalo in Mexico City in 2020. Um, and so that is um, part of quite a few demonstrations of that sort that have been held across Latin America around femicide, the killing of women um, for being women. That um, demonstration and the picture on the book shows a red shoes protest where red shoes are left in public places. Each shoe is red for blood and each shoe represents a woman who has been murdered. Wow. This was a huge demonstration in Mexico City in um, March um, 2020, as I was writing the book, and it was part. It was about femicide, and it was partly um, um, in memory and in honor of a woman called Ingrid Escamilla Vargas. And in February 2020, um, she was murdered and brutalized in quite horrific ways, which are too terrible to speak out loud. Um, by her husband. And so that demonstration was partly in her honor. And my book is also dedicated to her memory. And I, I feel that we all need to take forward the struggle against violence against women. And perhaps we can do so in the name of um, Ingrid Escamilla Vargas. Yes, we need to. Um, and that's why you wrote this book, isn't it? So stories and history like that is documented so we can learn from it. Um, so what what do you think are the most important organizational and campaigning tools we should be taking from this history, I suppose particularly around domestic violence? One of the things you talk about in the book is consciousness raising and how this could give us a thoughtful and grounded way forward. Yeah, um, well, the first thing to say is that campaigning is essential. You, um, these days we have a domestic uh, violence against women and girls sector providing services, but you need to have campaigns um, to change, to push forward social change, otherwise it won't happen. Mm. Um, and um, I think there is some value in returning to those methods of the early women's movement. They were, as I've said, attempts made to do things differently um, and they are in danger of being forgotten today. So the book is part of remembering them. Consciousness raising was a way of um, learning and evolving together um, through sharing experiences and from the experiences evolving theory and action, ideas for action and so on, which was very prevalent at the time and is worth thinking about um, for the future as well, I think. I mean, sometimes I think some organizations like Black Lives Matter sometimes use methods a bit like that too. Mm. So building from her, the slogan of the women's movement was always the personal is political. So building from personal experiences of abuse to evolve um, collective strategies for action. It feels like the focus has shifted 
over the decades from small collectives of the 1960s to large organizations that kind of have to fight to hold on to funding now as well as the methods do you think that there are particular characteristics of the early days of resistance to domestic violence that have been lost and should we be trying to bring these back into current frameworks yeah well times have changed of course and we don't have such a, a vibrant active movement as we did because obviously if you're being part of i would say being part of a social movement like that is a huge privilege in human life and um, i was lucky enough to have that but if that it's a bit different now um but there were practices like working as collectives as you've said um which were amazing ways very brave ways forward to make all decisions collectively um and also to involve women living in the refuges or receiving services as equal members of the collective so there are ideas about breaking down power differences between the women providing the services and the women receiving them which you could think was maybe idealistic and you know but in fact were quite amazing at the time and led to a whole different kind of service to what you might get you know in social services or something and they were um, amazing the idea was that abuse survivors were the experts not highly trained workers and that's been lost to some extent um there used to be a way um that um women um, who had lived in refuges were, became able to work in them later and that's gone to some extent some of these ideas would be worth returning to um the, the idea of doing things different the idea that women together across those who have been abused and those who haven't women mm. together can make change together um those ideas could be certainly returned to and remembered i think yeah i found it really um interesting in the book where you talk about all that collaboration that happened because you really do address the potential idealism of it and the difficulties and how the women resolved them it's really helpful to read um, just going on to research, um, what impact has women's activism had on feminist research and what are your hopes for the future here? Um, well, um, um, as a result of the violence against women movement, by about the 80s, the idea began to be talked about in universities that we could develop feminist inspired if you like uh, violence against women research to take on the issue and to provide evidence that the movement and the services needed so violence against women research came from an activist base there were pioneering early researchers um, um, who are still um, with us i'm pleased to say like jalna hanma our esteemed elder jalna hanma the rebecca and russell dobash liz kelly and so on who forged the way and the idea was to not do sort of flaky research but to do robust research which would stand up to scrutiny but research which served the cause if you like um, of making social change for women and the um the research on violence against women tended and still tends when it can to focus on being collaborative working together um, rather than competing all the time on doing research for abused women and children for the cause but doing it in a robust way and breaking down power differences perhaps between the women researching and the women being interviewed or whatever 
Um, we began to set up centers like our one in Bristol, the I was a founder of 30 years ago, uh, now headed by Marianne Hester. Um, and um, there also the British Sociological Association has for a long time run a violence against women research study group, which has been really helpful in terms of helping because it was a struggle to get the universities to take on this issue. They, they didn't want to. Right. <laughs> and okay. it's been a long fight to get yeah. it now to the position that it's now in, violence against women research. Okay. Um, so what do you hope the future holds then for violence against women research? Um, for research itself, um, well, we'll just keep on going forward. Um, obviously, a lot more of it now is about evaluation and things that might be slightly boring. But one of the things I've been involved in is transnational research, working in a collaborative way with women yes. in other countries, yeah. trying to avoid dominance from the West. And that is something which takes the utmost humility and the utmost humanity, but is really important so that we can learn from each other across different parts of the world. Yes, definitely. Okay, this is my last question. I mean, the fact of male violence against women hasn't changed, but women continue to fight and organize and your book will be an empowering tool for this. You end the book with an analogy of a tapestry. So you say, the only way for the tapestry of challenging domestic abuse and violence against women to develop is to undo the knots and reweave and then reweave again so that it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. What would you like to see happen in the coming years and decades to add to this tapestry of transformation? Yeah, thank you, Jess. That's a really lovely question. Um, the, the tapestry analogy was a gift really from Liz Kelly, who originally came up with it as an, uh, in Violence Against Women work, we build a multicolored tapestry. Um, well, um, there needs to be increasing acceptance across the world of the need for services and of the need for policy. Um, and there needs to be continuing campaigns around specific, culturally specific issues um, and others. Um, there needs to be a, a move forward, of course, in um, challenging power relations so that men perhaps not all men, but men perhaps are not no longer so dominant and that everybody is educated that domestic violence is something that just cannot happen. Um, we have started that process, but it's a long struggle. I would say that the struggle goes on. We're on the cusp of change on, for example, honor-based violence, which is now in public view in a way it wasn't before. And it's a historical process. You have to look to the long term. I'm proud to be part of that um, historical process and of course it has ups and downs and setbacks and backlashes um but we the point of the book is to look at the history including the more recent history um around um the, the recent developments in the uk around uh, services as i say for black and minority women among services across the world um is to remember the history as we move forward into the future and um, one of the things for me is that I've had the incredible honour of working with inspiring activists, women activists all over the world in different places um, and working with them is to see that there is, there are ways forward, the cusp of change is here, there will be, as I say, there will be backlashes, but we are moving forward, we have indeed, I would say, come further than you think. And 
even though violence against women remains so um, terrible across the world. I, I wanted, I don't know if I wanted really to read one of my poems, if that's okay. Jess. Please, please do. Okay, well, um, as I say, I've been honoured to work with activists all over the world, and it's partly to celebrate them that this book has been written. The poem I'm going to read is called A Girl and a Boy, and it does contain distressing images. Um, it's set in a Middle Eastern country, but and it's about violence in the name of honour. But of course, such um, forms of violence are in no ways limited to um, the Middle East or to any particular religion like Islam or whatever. They occur widely across the world in different contexts in different places. And the poem is dedicated to all the survivors and victims of violence in the name of honour. Um, but also it's dedicated to the brave women activists working against it, um, which, I've, as I say, I've had the honour of working with. Um, you know, activists who stand up and fight for what they believe in in ways that in this country we can scarcely contemplate. A girl and a boy. A girl and a boy. She leads the play in a sweet way. He follows her with adulation in his eyes, giggling and tumbling together. They don't know yet. They don't know that in the future, she will probably have to obey him, her younger male relative rarely enter public spaces, uphold family honour at all costs, never go out at night unless with male kin, do whatever her husband demands. He will probably have free range. Things are better in the cities. But in some places, she could still be killed in the name of honour. We met a wife whose nose had been cut off. We spoke with women mutilated, imprisoned, unable to walk after attack by beloved brothers, or forced to marry and serve their rapist. Not anymore, though. Things are on the move. A new type of woman won't stand for it. Old ways are being challenged through their courage, their vigilance, these fine women activists. Many have fought as freedom fighters for the liberation of their homelands. Now they challenge honour killings. They have to keep going despite death threats, despite public dishonouring by name in their traumatised country, sprouting anew. Despite religious fatwas against them, they have pushed through a change in the law that used to say murder of women for honour 
was not murder. Now they make progress. They campaign against beatings, shamings. They set up some services. A few shelters with guards are opened. The government says it will make changes. The TV calls honor violence dishonorable. The authorities are forced to act. A new consensus begins to emerge. The courageous women stand firm as tigers. Sometimes they cry at night. But they are making something fresh, a curve of change that can't be stopped now. Perhaps that girl and that little boy will be able to walk free. Hope has arrived. For now, she leads the play in a sweet way. He follows her with adulation in his eyes, giggling and tumbling together. Thank you, Jill. Um, it's been a privilege to speak to you today and thank you for sharing your experience. Um, more information about Jill's book, History and Memories of the Domestic Violence Movement, We've Come Further Than You Think, can be found on our website, which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.